as always on these occasions. It's been terrific to hear the words of testimony. And now we come to hear God's word. So I invite you to take a Bible from uh, the pew in front of you, if you don't have one, and turn with me this evening to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. It's on page 1182. And we're going to just read three verses, verses 21 to 23 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing to a church in the Greek town of Colossae. And he says to these believers from verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Amen. An English novelist Ida Scott Taylor once said this, Do not look back over the past, for it is gone. Do not be troubled about the future, for it has yet to come. Live in the present and make it so beautiful it will be worth remembering. Well, I wonder if that's how you live your life. Certainly many people would rather not look back on their past. Equally, many others, especially in these uncertain times, would rather not look forward to the future. And most people, therefore, most of the time, follow the advice of Mrs. Taylor. We live in the present. We live for the moment. We focus on the here and now. But according to the Bible and according to these verses, there is another way to live. There is a different perspective that we can have on our lives. I suppose you could call it the Christian perspective. And what is striking about it is that it is a panoramic view, a panoramic worldview of life. No sticking our heads in the sand here. The Christian looks the past squarely in the face. The Christian previews the future with confidence. And the Christian looks to the present with joyful assurance. And it's this perspective, this Christian worldview that Paul is talking about in these few verses. I've called it a panoramic perspective because it looks to the past, the present, and the future. Now, I'd like to consider this worldview with you, and maybe particularly if you're not a Christian. I want you to get inside the head of a believer in Jesus. I want you to see the world from a Christian point of view tonight. And the first thing you must understand about our perspective is this, that as we look back to our past, here is what we see. 
Here is what God shows us about our past. There is alienation in the past. Alienation in the past. Paul begins in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God. What is interesting about this is that Paul is writing to Christians. Paul is writing to a a church, a group of, of believers in Jesus in a town called Colossae. And he says to these believers, once you were alienated from God. Now, Paul is clearly not speaking about just some of the Christians in this church. The you here is plural. In other words, Paul is saying that every single Christian, without exception, in this church of Colossae, you all were at one time alienated from God. Last uh, Sunday, it was Mother's Day. I hope you didn't forget about it. And I noticed an article on the internet relating to Mother's Day, and it was a whole list of celebrity names. Names you would all recognize, uh, David Beckham, Britney Spears, you know, Tom Cruise, Angelina Jolie, Keanu Reeves, Madonna. I discovered what all these people have in common, apart from the fact that they're celebrities. Each and every one of them are alienated, estranged from either one or both of their parents. The article explained that despite their their million-dollar lifestyles, there's a poverty in some of their relationships. Whatever other differences, this was the same. And, And Paul is saying that here. He's claiming that every Christian, without exception, at one time, we were all alienated from God. It's not from a human relationship, but a relationship with God that we were alienated Imagine if you polled most people on George Street on a Monday morning and you said to them, what's your view on God? They would be a little surprised at the Bible's assessment. Most people would maybe say that they simply don't believe God exists. Or perhaps they would say that though God may exist, they're apathetic about that fact. But few, if any, would say that they were hostile to God. And yet that, in fact, is what it means to be alienated. To be alienated is to be estranged, to become an enemy of, to be at enmity with. And this is how the Bible describes every human being before they become a Christian. Alienated. You notice in the second half of verse 21, Paul says, the problem is not merely atheism or ignorance or apathy It is enmity. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. In thought and in deed, you were living your life against the grain of God's will. Elsewhere in the Bible, this is categorized by a word called sin. Sin means to reject God's way and to go our own way. Sin means to be our own God of our own life rather than letting God be God of our lives. And in this way, all of us, to some degree or other, at some point or other, have fallen short of God's holy standard. 
Now, maybe you're here this evening and you say, but you don't realize I'm a pretty good person. You don't understand. I try and do the right thing most of the time. That's great. I give to charity every now and again. I help others when that's possible. These are good things. But you need to realize that the standard is not what other people think of you. It's not even what you think of yourself. It's what God thinks of you. It's as we put our lives under the microscope of God's holy gaze. That's what matters and what counts. And in particular, it's as I study this book, this book called the Bible, that I begin to see just how far short I have fallen from the glory and the holiness of God. And my daughter was at nursery on Friday, and when we picked her up, she was very excited. She told us that that day she had been learning about germs in class. She's only four years old. And they had someone come in to talk about germs. And they told the children to put their hands out like this. And they said, do you think your hands are clean? And all the children said, they're clean. Probably were pretty messy, but anyway. And they brought out this special kind of light. And they shone this special light on their hands. And they were able to see that their hands were covered in germs absolutely teeming. The teacher said it was disgusting with germs. You see, that's what the Bible is like, folks. We look to the surface of our lives and it looks okay to us. But under the light of God's word, there's actually a lot of creepy crawlies there. There's a lot of defilement. There's a lot of of gruesome grime. As I come to see my life as God sees it. And so this is the first fact you must understand about the Christian. That as we, as we look to our own lives, we don't think of ourselves as any better than anyone else. We don't think that we deserve to be Christians. We in fact believe that at one point in our life, we were full steam ahead, going in the opposite direction from God. We were an enemy of God. Maybe you hear this evening... And you know that in your own life, there is a distance from God. He seems far away. This is the reason for the distance, our sinfulness, which alienates us. Now, the wonderful news is this. It doesn't need to stay that way. And that brings us to the second fact, reconciliation in the present, verse 22. Verse 22 begins, but now... Once you were alienated, says Paul, but now, present tense, he has reconciled you. Who has reconciled you? God has reconciled you. This is just absolutely staggering, isn't it? When you think about it in this way, we created the enmity, God provides the reconciliation. We put up the barrier, the wall between us and God, and God broke the barrier down. We were the ones who declared war on God, and yet God takes the initiative to establish peace terms. He reconciled you. Yes, you necessarily turned from your sin. You came back to God, and yet that return was contingent with something that God did for you. He reconciled with you. Peter referred earlier on to that wonderful story of the prodigal son who was lost. 
that son who was tired of his father's love, bored with his father's home, sick of his father's authority. And one day he said to his father, give me my share of the estate. He wanted what he would get when his father would eventually die, and he wanted it now. And again, this is enmity. In Jewish culture, this would have been shocking. It would have indeed been aggressive. It was akin to him really saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Took the money and ran. But I love the end of the story. The son comes to his senses and he starts trudging up the long road home and you can imagine him coming over the brow of the hill and there's something in his mind, the scripture tells us this in Luke 15, he's wondering whether his father will reconcile with him. He has this little speech in his mind that he'll say to his father, listen, you'll never accept me as a son, but maybe you'll welcome me as a slave. The wonderful thing is that the father spots the son in the distance and the father runs out to the son and he doesn't let him get through his little speech. He immediately welcomes him and he throws a party for his son and he begins a new relationship with his son. And he reconciles with his son. The son had to come back, but it was contingent on the father's will to reconcile with him. And Paul says, that's what God has done for you. And notice how he did it. He reconciled with you by Christ's physical body through death. This explains not so much who reconciled with us, but how. God reconciled with us, and and how did he do it? Well, God couldn't simply overlook sin. God is far too holy. He's far too just to simply brush sin under the carpet. He can't welcome us back without any price being paid for the sins committed. That's why if you read the Old Testament part of the Bible, it often seems so gruesome. Animals are getting slain right, left, and center. There's always a price that has to be paid for sin. But in the end, in the New Testament... In the Lord Jesus Christ, God sends his son into the world. And he says, my son will now be the full and the final sacrificial price for sin. We are reconciled, says Paul, by Christ's physical body through death. You know, Jesus died to reconcile you to God. If you're a Christian, Jesus died to make that happen. Isn't that amazing tonight? The death of Jesus is the means by which any person is reconciled to God. When Jesus died for me, it was so that I could live. Jesus bore my sin so that I might bear his righteousness. Some people have called this the great exchange. I was thinking of it in this way by illustration. Some of you will be getting books for your baptism tonight. And I want you to imagine this evening that someone at the end of the service gives you two books to take away. And you turn to the the side of one book and you see the title of it and the title says Sin. You open the book up titled Sin and it's a deplorable book to read. It's very thick and you discover in it that it has every single sin that you have ever committed. Everything you've ever done wrong, everything you've ever thought wrong, God knows it all, and it's written in the book. And then you get to chapter 2, and you discover all the sins of all your friends and all your family. 
And then you get to the next large section of the book and you find the sins of all the human beings in the world who have ever lived. It takes you about an eternity to read this book. And you think, what an appropriate title, sin. You flick to the front cover, you look at the title, and then you see there's a picture underneath the title. And the picture on the book called Sin is a picture of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, dying for your sin. You see, this is a wonderful mystery. The Bible tells us that Jesus on the cross became sin for us. Though he himself was righteous, he himself was perfect. It was as if Jesus said, all these sins that you've committed, all these sins written down, set for God's judgment, I'm willing to be as it were, as though I were the author of these sins. I'm willing to take ownership of these sins. And I'm willing to die for these sins. You take the other book from the pile and you discover there's another title in the side of it and the title is Faultless. Faultless. You open up the book and it's a great book. It's full of every conceivable positive attribute, every wonderful deed, every pure and holy thought. You think, I could read this book for an eternity. And then you turn to the front of the book and you see the title again, Faultless. And you look under the title and you see a picture. And you know whose picture it's of? It's your picture. And it's the picture of every Christian you've ever known. Because the wonderful truth is that while our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross, his righteousness was transferred to our account. It's as if all the wonderful things that Jesus ever did were things that we did. We are given his righteousness. If you're not a Christian this evening, that is what you could know. It doesn't matter how much you've done wrong. Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sin to reconcile you. You need to accept that this evening. So alienation in the past, that's the first part of our worldview. Secondly, in the present, reconciliation. But there's a final aspect to it in verse 23, continuation in the future. Continuation in the future. You see, the the Christian perspective is truly panoramic. It, it, It can reflect on the past. It can consider the present, but it also can gaze into the future with a great degree of confidence. Only God fully knows the future, of course, and what it will hold. And yet, as Christians, we have a determination that however many years we live our life, we will continue in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says here in verse 23. In fact, he says that it's an evidence of the fact that we have been reconciled to God. You are reconciled, verse 22, if you continue, verse 23. The continuing is the evidence of the reconciliation. Just imagine it in this way, in the negative. Imagine a friend of yours tells you that they have been recently reconciled to their spouse. You've heard some sad news a few months earlier that, that this, this couple, this husband and wife, had been separated. But he comes, this friend, and he says that he and his wife have been reconciled. And you see, that's wonderful news. But the strange thing is, over the next week and, weeks and months, something doesn't seem right. Because this friend of yours, he never seems to ever talk about his spouse that he's apparently reconciled with. 
and then you go around to his house on a few occasions and you discover that his spouse hasn't even moved back into the house. She doesn't even live there. Wouldn't you, at that point, question what your friend first told you? I mean, he had said that there had been a reconciliation. But there's no evidence of that in his life. And you know, in the same way, someone can say, I'm a Christian. Someone can say, I've been reconciled to God. But what is the evidence of that, that others might observe? Well, says Paul, there must be evidence. And the evidence is this, that the Christian will continue in their faith. Established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. You know, it's a person that doesn't simply just get baptized, but who continues the rest of their life. It's a person who doesn't merely make an early profession of faith, but continues all the way to maturity. Do you know the funny thing about the Christian faith? The way you continue is by standing still. The way that you move on in your Christian life is by not moving. That's what Paul says here, not moved from the hope of the gospel. And we sang about that in our earliest song, didn't we? That picture of us being in a pit. Just imagine you're in a pit. Imagine you're in a quicksand and you're sinking fast. That's where all of us were spiritually at one time. Suddenly a hand comes, grips hold of your arm, pulls you out. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lifts you out of that pit and he sets you on a rock. We sang about that in the chorus, didn't we? Now I stand firm on this rock. And we're on this rock. And you know what the New Testament tells us? It tells us that that rock is the gospel. That rock is the good news about Christ. But I want you to picture this. The rock's only big enough for your feet. And if you step anywhere else, if you go anywhere else but stand on this rock, you sink. That's what Paul's saying here. The Christian life, as we continue, is actually about standing firm and standing fast and standing here on the gospel. The Christian who professes Jesus at 22 is still professing all the same things when they're 92. The same truths. That Jesus died for our sin. That he rose again to give us life. And so this is really a challenge, this point, for our baptismal candidates. That this evening is a very significant juncture in your life. But friends, brothers and sisters, continue. Continue in your faith. And don't move from the gospel. When the temptations come, when the devil comes and sows his ideas, when trials and temptations come, Stand firm on the gospel and you'll find that it's solid ground to stand on. And if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, well, this could be your experience. Maybe in a day coming, it will be you stepping into this tank, saying, once I was alienated, now I am reconciled and now I'm going to continue to follow Jesus. We're going to sing a song that's all about how that reconciliation was made possible. It's about the body of Christ being given up to death for us. And as baptism is a picture of the death and the resurrection of Christ, it's a very appropriate song. As we sing, God may be leading you to understand that Christ did these things for you.
to reconcile you. The chorus says, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross.